This is Data Materiality, a podcast series about the ways in which digital data depends on physical forms and infrastructures and comes to matter in practice and imagination. The impetus for this podcast is a three-year research project by the same name, Data Materiality, co-sponsored by Birkbeck's Centre for Interdisciplinary Research in Media and Culture and the Vasari Centre for Art and Technology. My name is Scott Rogers. I co-host this series with my colleague Joel McKim. In this episode, I spoke with Shannon Mattern, Professor of Anthropology at the New School for Social Research, which is based in New York City, USA. More than most scholars I can think of, Shannon's work spans a very wide range of topics, everything from archives and libraries to the deep histories of media infrastructures in the city. Our chat ranged from a recent essay of Shannon's on the narratives surrounding 5G technologies and on to her explorations of media materiality, time, and the city, and how all of these are not only arenas for her research, but things inspired by our teaching and pedagogy as well. So let's go on to that interview, recorded in May 2019. Now, before we get into some of the broader horizons of your research, I'd like to begin with something quite current, which is the imminent arrival of 5G wireless connectivity, uh, on which you have an article forthcoming in the journal uh, Places. You start this article narrating the myriad fantasies surrounding 5G. So to set the scene, I was wondering if you might give us a sense of what some of these data fantasies are. Sure. So I, maybe I should start by saying that um, this is kind of an anomalous, slightly wonky research topic for me. But I wanted to focus on this because I have written a lot, particularly again in Places Journal, about um, data-driven urbanism, smart cities, etc. And 5G is one of those things I've always heard about as the infrastructure, the factual pipes and cables essentially that will make smart cities a reality. Mm. But in looking at this thing that was supposed to be this factual infrastructural um, occurrence, I ultimately realized that it is even more ethereal and fantastical than smart cities themselves. So um, a lot of what we know about them thus far, because 5G is only now in certain small pockets of certain cities of the world becoming a reality, so it hasn't really actualized yet on a large scale. So much of what we know about it thus far still comes through marketing rhetoric and um, boosterist engineers and telecommunication professionals' descriptions of what the future they want to make possible. So um, actually, a lot of the fantasies they're presenting to us aren't really that exciting. They sound very familiar to what we heard about in relation to 4G and 3G, and we even heard about in relation to the rise of the radio, the rise of the telegraph. So there are a lot of these rehearsed scripts um, that we hear repeatedly, although in each new iteration with each new technology, it's just slightly faster, slightly more robust. So in this case, 5G, we are told, is supposed to make possible, um, this might be a new thing, uh, much more robust virtual reality. It will allow for multiplayer games, for instance, with minimal lag time. I do not play multiplayer games, but apparently one of the concerns about that or one of the frustrations with people who do this is that uh, connectivity does not keep up with the data demands to allow for instantaneous, smooth, seamless type of play uh, across a distributed geography. So 5G, again, because of its extraordinary capacity, it's supposed to be 100 times faster and support 100 times more devices as what we currently have with 4G. Um, it will allow for a seamless, glitch-free experience, both with virtual reality and multiplayer games. It will allow for the Internet of Things to be realized, so we'll have billions of devices talking to each other in the background, allowing for, again, seamless urban experiences and efficiencies. It will supposedly make possible autonomous vehicles, 
uh, in that not only will they be able to talk to each other as part of the Internet of the thing of things that is, but they also to be able to connect to the Uber map in the cloud because that's an integral part of autonomous vehicles, not just their, you know, immediate sense of place, but also there's kind of going to be a map that is constantly being written, rewritten in the cloud that individual cars are contributing to. Um, it will allow for, again, a lot of very familiar sounding dreams like distributed education, the fact that we can engage in really complicated scientific experiments from multiple places in the world simultaneously. And uh, in addition to these more kind of um, consumer entertainment oriented applications, I think that another selling point is that it will allow a lot of people to finally cut the cord from their cable provider because we will have essentially all the connectivity we need through mobile devices. And furthermore, that it will allow for us to reach all those people who are on the wrong side of the digital divide, particularly those in remote or rural parts of the world, which I have to say, given the topography of 5G, seems a little bit unlikely, uh, which we can get to in a bit if you like. But this is another one of the selling points. It's not just for people in cities who are going to be having autonomous vehicles and sensors and other types of urban efficiencies, but also for those in more remote areas. They will finally be able to experience all of the benefits of, of uh, high broadband connectivity. Now, quite quickly in the article, though, you point out that realizing all these sorts of 5G futures, I think what you call a datafied dream world, very much depends on material facts on the ground. So what are some of these facts? Okay, so as lots of scholarship has demonstrated to us recently, the cloud is not really an ethereal, immaterial thing. The internet is not a placeless, immaterial kind of construct. All of these things, the wireless essentially depends on lots of lots of wires. The internet depends upon really heavy infrastructure. It's just often removed from our immediate environment and displaced in data centers and remote realms or in cables that are buried under the ground, for instance. We know a lot of this already. The same thing is true with 5G in that we really can't have 5G wireless service without lots and lots of cable. So we're still going to depend upon fiber optic cables because essentially everything that's going to be connected, all of the cells and individual installations of infrastructure do have to be connected to cable somewhere that has to go into the ground and connect to some type of an exchange point. Mm -hmm. But some of the unique things about 5G infrastructure that makes it different than what we had before is that, first of all, I should mention that we'll be building on the infrastructure we already had before. It's not as if that old stuff is going to go away. We're still going to have big data centers in remote locations. We're still going to have large towers that you might see kind of on the periphery of developed areas or towns. But because 5G depends on what's called, it's a different area of the electromagnetic spectrum, what's called a higher frequency. Uh, and because of that, the waves are uh, shorter. They're called millimeter waves. And because of the unique physics of those types of waves, they're a little bit, well, not a little bit, a lot more fragile. So because these millimeter waves are relatively fragile, much more so than the waves we were using in previous communications, in other words, they can be impeded by everything from human bodies to architecture to trees to rain, essentially anything that gets in their way can inhibit the communication. We have to build a really robust infrastructure to support those waves, which means that we need installations of what are called small cells that allow for MIMO, which is multiple input, multiple output communications, much more frequently and um, uh, repeatedly in installed throughout their urban and rural environments. So in other words, we probably will need an installation of a small cell estimated every 500 feet or so. Whereas with 4G telecommunications, an, a large tower that you might see again on the periphery of a town or a neighborhood could potentially have a reach of up to t of several miles. Mm -hmm. So we're getting a lot more small cells. 
Fortunately, it doesn't mean always having to install a brand new piece of hardware. We can use existing infrastructure like light poles and street poles, etc., or we can install these small cells on buildings. Some European companies are actually proposing that they can install them on, on the underside of manhole covers. So they could actually just be an attachment onto things that are already in their urban environment or the town environment or rural environment. That said, it is very likely that we're getting a lot of new towers too, millions of new small cells across the world to allow for this seamless connection of a 5G datafied utopia that will embrace the world. And you've already mentioned that we're still going to have the data centers and, and these sorts of um, centralized or large scale facilities. But it does seem that with 5G, it necessitates because of its shorter reach, a new kind of distributed material infrastructure, or maybe not so new. Um, one of the things I think that was interesting that you mentioned in the paper is you draw a comparison between 5G as a kind of distributed infrastructure with highway construction, the kind of construction we saw in the post-war period, which was obviously quite invasive and in many cases led to the destruction of certain neighborhoods. And I think one of the things you're suggesting is that it's possible that we might regret 5G one day. Uh, well, it is probably will be a little bit less invasive than a massive six or eight lane highway that's actually decimating an entire neighborhood. Mm. That said, if you look at the square footage totaled up across millions of installations across the world, that is a lot of new space, new real estate that is, will be taken up by this infrastructure. And even though I said earlier, we could potentially use existing poles and supports and scaffoldings to install these small cells, a lot of them will still also require things like antennae and sensor and energy sources. In some cases, that will be installed in refrigerator size or post box size boxes sitting on the ground or attached another way to whatever the support is. So those will be new inhabitants of our sidewalks that we'll have to share the space with. In addition, because we want to have low latency, that's another one of the selling points of 5G, is that low latency is minimal wait time, essentially. Um, I'm not sure that it'll be humanly perceptible, hmm. but if you are doing one of those things like using VR or multiplayer games, etc., it does make a difference. It'll be um, much less glitchy than what existing communications will allow yeah. for. I think like, low latency is the kind of thing that, that can be experienced more affectively, really. Like you, you, you notice it in a way that just something doesn't seem quite right. Right, exactly. Hmm. One of the other installations of hardware that allows that to be possible is that we have to think of a new data center topology as well. So while we still will need the massive data centers like the ones that Amazon and Google use kind of in more remote terrains, if we do want to have the data closer to home, closer to the actual point of use, there will be a lot more metropolitan or um, local data centers, smaller centers that are actually located in our neighborhoods because even that distance of 10 miles or 100 miles or 1,000 miles can make a millimeter second or a, sorry, a microsecond difference in terms of our experience of the content itself. In addition, there are some companies who are also developing little micro centers that could actually potentially live at the base of a small cell installation. So it's, I'm not sure how frequently those could be used, but uh, we could have data centers much more regularly interspersed throughout our residential and commercial areas. And obviously there's a politics to all of this in the sense that uh, if you have these sort of material facts on the ground, there's quite a lot of uh, not just infrastructural provisions that need to be made, but also democratic decisions that also that need to be made about uh, about installing infrastructure. And it seems that one of the things you're pointing to is that there's this sort of impetus to hurry up, get this infrastructure installed, even if that means, and I think this is one of the things you mentioned in the paper, implementing what are what you might call shot clock rules on local government. 
government, where basically local government are given time to, uh, I guess, oppose or to contest the implementation of certain infrastructure, but only for a certain period of time, which I guess minimizes time left for democratic accountability. Yes, absolutely. But as you can mention, given that I said about the the intensity and the distribution of the, a lot of this new infrastructural installation, there are some concerns by citizens and property owners in particular that this will sully the landscape or decrease their property values. And I realize that sounds, the way I framed it here, sounds kind of nimbyist and protectionist. But there are also legitimate concerns that there are corporations, private telecommunications companies, who are essentially claiming public space. They're using pub the public space or, or parasiting onto uh, right-of-way, kind of rights to use certain public lands to install their infrastructure. So those are sources of concern for the public who have raised a lot of these issues with their local and sometimes even federal, state and federal governments. But because the FCC tends to be very corporation-friendly, particularly under the current administration, they have tried to minimize to lubricate the way for the telecommunications companies, in part because they want to win the 5G, the global 5G race. And one of the ways they've done that is to limit, as you said, the amount of time that a, a local municipality can deliberate over uh, what a telecommunications company is proposing. Another part of that is also that they are restricted from opposing anything that would limit the access to high-speed internet for anybody within the community, which essentially means that the FCC is using this pretense of digital connectivity as a way to essentially shut down any opposition to an installation. And one of the things you've mentioned already uh, about this impetus of the FCC to get 5G installed is this almost geopolitical dimension, really. And you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about, in the United States, of course, that geopolitical dimension when it comes to particularly the arena of technology is the United States and China. And one of the ways this has entered the news discourse recently is Huawei and in the UK as well. A lot of the currency of 5G is associated with the possibility of spying almost. It's sort of like uh, often uh, technological change needs a kind of news story for it to make sense. But I mean, coming back to this like uh, geopolitical dimension, I mean, how important is that to the pressure that's being put on developing this infrastructure, do you think? Well, I think this is another one of those areas of imaginary, of the imaginary also. It's this imagined, almost kind of manufactured fight or war over supremacy between the United States and China based on the fact that, you know, Trump doesn't really understand the facts of anything he's legislating or developing policy over. Uh, so his presumption that the United States will desire, or many countries desire, to win the race. I mean, this is our new space race. It's just that the, at the altitude has been brought down to the troposphere rather than up in the realm of satellites. Although 5G could potentially depend on satellites, real actual satellites too. But in this case, in addition to the fact that you have several different regions of the world vying to be first, South Korea actually technically was first. They rolled out to beat the United States, and Verizon had a minimal rollout in parts of Minneapolis and Chicago. Three telecom companies in South Korea beat them by just a couple hours by rolling out to essentially seven people. That was their way of crossing the finish line first. But the big kind of dichotomy, as you said, is between China and the United States. And that particular war, which is based on kind of two hothead regimes, essentially, is ultimately shaping the pace of rollout across the rest of the world. Now, the emphasis you've placed on, I guess, the materiality of 5G is characteristic of your research and thinking more broadly. And your most recent book, Code and Clay, Data and Dirt, evokes this orientation very nicely, I think. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about this broader emphasis in your work, perhaps in particular in that book, and tell us a bit about why does the materiality of media and data matter to you? 
Well, in the book in particular, which really focuses specifically on the urban environment, but also looks kind of at the architectural scale and sometimes at the regional infrastructural scale as the architectural urban and infrastructural all kind of inform one another. If you're thinking about spatial planning from a, like a regional design perspective, you have to think across the different scales. So there I'm really thinking about the space itself as a communicative medium, how architecture of course kind of communicates symbolically, how the physical spaces of plazas and the voids in a city essentially function as acoustic media, resonance chambers, how the placement of antennae and rooftops allows for kind of line of sight communication between through the electric magnetic ether, how there's a long history of inscribing on building facades, the history of epigraphy, of calligraphic writing on buildings, which is really prominent kind of in Islamic cultures. So just this long history of writing on the landscape itself, of using the landscape, using the material of the earth, both to build our cities from and to build our writing substrates. Just all these entwined histories of communication, both in written form and in coded form, I think have been, it's kind of interesting to see how these realms have been entangled throughout the entire history of both communication and urbanization. And another very important theme in the work, uh, in the book rather, uh, is time. And specifically thinking historically or archaeologically about media, data, and as you say, the city. And of course, the subtitle of this book, Code and Clay, Data and Dirt, is 5,000 Years of Urban Media, which is a long historical duration. And, you know, maybe picking up again on the materiality dimension at the same time, what does this deep temporal and historical inflection do for you in your work? Well, just going back to what I was saying earlier about a lot of these 5G data fantasies, the fact that they're really not novel at all, their rehearsals may be slightly sped up of dreams we've had in relation to 4G and 3G and 2G and radio and print and uh, added vitam. So as we layer down or dig down into different layers of supposed communication revolutions, the same kind of dreams and tropes that are being rehearsed repeatedly. So I feel like that is one of my motivations for digging back in time. So the book is organized in reverse chronological order. So I start with kind of radio, telecommunications, telegraph and telephone, then go to print, then writing, then the voice. And it's not to say that I'm also arguing in the book that the older media are still present. Even though the voice is the fourth chapter, I argue in each of the chapters that just because it's quote unquote old media, that it's still very much present in contemporary communication environments. So the deep time orientation allows me both to remind us that there are a lot of repeated tropes that happen throughout um, communication and urban history and to also demonstrate that the materiality is still there, that the newer stuff is built on a substrate, is built on path dependencies created by communication infrastructures that came before them. So just seeing how the old stuff shapes the new, the new is following in the traditions of the old. So that's essentially why I like to follow this kind of deep time orientation. And when I was writing the book and thinking about the fact that I was going back for five millennia, it felt a little bit hubristic in a way almost arrogant to think that somebody could cover 5,000 years of history, but then I realized how much I, my work was inspired by like Lewis Mumford's work and realized as well, if he can write several books who have a time frame of that scale, maybe I could try it too, even if my scope is a little bit more narrow than his. Right, well, why not? I, and I, I think you do a very good job at combating what I might see as the sort of presentist or, and also futurist tendencies of people talking about media, digitalization and the city. One of the things actually that also allows you to do, and you mentioned this in that book, 
is it seems to allow you to invite a more ordinary conception of cities. Uh, and this is a term that's inspired by the urban geographer Jenny Robinson. And I think the, the hook here is that when we are talking about media cities, as you point out in the book, there's a tendency to conflate media cities with gl the global city and to talk about certain types of cities, which are concentrations of the creative industries, certain types of firms, certain types of digital infrastructures, fiber optic networks, for example. London's a great example of a city that is sort of an obvious media city. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be that you're saying really all cities are mediated. So does it invite, and do you think it's, I guess, important as well for us to think about the mediated city globally in a different sense than the global city though, in other contexts? Absolutely, and this is another place where the 5,000 year temporality becomes useful because there's a particular, like, archeology span is a really useful discipline through which to think about timeframes of that scale. And archaeology often takes place, archaeological digs take place not always in major cities, often off the beaten path or outside what we regard as our global cities for various reasons. And because I was able to draw on this wide geographic range of case studies through the lens of archaeology and urban history, the book was able to look at some different examples from, I think, six of the seven continents. I don't know that I made the way to Antarctica in any of the chapters, but it does remind us that every city has its own version of smartness. And also to see that if we look, do a cross-cut temporally across these regions of the world, we realize that not all media cities or global network cities adhere to the same kind of time frame of quote-unquote progress. That what constitutes newness in one part of the one region of the world might be oldness elsewhere. Or certain regions might have completely leapfrogged or jumped over what elsewhere would have been normalized as a necessary kind of linear progression from one medium to the next. So just reminding us this naturalized route of progression is not a universal phenomenon. That's what I think looking globally allows us to see the diversity in these patterns of evolution. Yeah, and I suppose um, that it might even alert us to the possibility that uh, if we're looking for the future, we might not look in the usual places that we tend to look in the global north or the west, but actually in, say, Kinshasa or somewhere like that. Those patterns might be the patterns of the urban future. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Now, one of the things that uh, I really appreciate about you as a scholar, if you don't mind me saying so, is the considerable attention and care I think you do dedicate or give to pedagogy. And a familiar trope in the academy, certainly in the UK, is academics saying, proudly, that they do research-led teaching. And we were talking about this yesterday at the workshop you were doing here at Birkbeck. But, you know, one thing we were saying is, you know, we might also proudly proclaim that teaching deeply informs research. Um, so maybe tell me a little bit about how pedagogy feeds into your work and informs your research. So there is a pretty tight link between some of the courses I teach. I do occasionally teach courses like surveys of theory, methodology classes, which are covering topics and, and skills that are relevant to my own work, but they're not driven by my own particular, at the moment, research interests. But there is a close tie between the things I'm teaching and a lot of things I'm working on. And I, as you pointed out, I think the, the normal way of, of characterizing that or explaining that is that faculty will bring their research into the classroom and have the students work on a project with them as they're developing a book project on it. For me, a lot of my teaching is driven by something that my students have expressed interest in or where I see critical mass of student interest or that also intersects with something I would like to learn more about. So I go in the first time I teach a class as a novice with curiosity that I hope matches my students. And then after teaching a class, sometimes even once, I might realize like, 
oh, there's uh, a, an article I really wish I could have assigned to the students here that would have explained the connections between these ideas. It would have historicized this, but I just couldn't find it. Maybe I should write it because we talked about it in class. And then I will, I've almost always, I hope I haven't missed any opportunities to do this, acknowledge the students in the acknowledgements to the book or the article. And then after teaching a class multiple times, sometimes uh, something more substantial will come out of it. The Code and Clay book was actually something that I had been stewing over, sounds a bit pejorative, but like ruminating over for over 10 years. It was actually rooted in a class I proposed as part of my postdoc in 2002 about media and architecture, where in that class I organized it chronologically. We started with clay tablets, the history of writing, and how those were connected to early civilization or early settlements in Mesopotamia. And then at the end of the semester, we got up to things like data centers. And we also went to Diller and Scofidio. The architects had a big show at the Whitney Museum, and it was about computational fabrication. So there were kind of robot drilling machines and robot um, fabrication. So we, that's where we ended up at the end of the semester. So as we moved throughout this to 15 weeks, we got closer and closer to things that the students understood. And then at the end, they realized, like, oh, that's why we were talking about all that old stuff at the beginning. So the second time I caught the class, I realized like I should flip the script and start with what they know and then we excavate. This is where I would have called it media archaeology at the time because a lot of these texts in media archaeology hadn't been translated at that time. I didn't even know it was a, a, a subdiscipline. But I guess there was an archaeological pedagogical strategy I was using, digging backwards in time throughout the semester. So start with what they know and then repeatedly defamiliarize it through each of the subsequent 14 weeks. And by teaching that class and variations on it and different mapping classes, looking at the same ideas through different methodologies and lenses, that's where the book came out of uh, 15 years later. And part of the reason also it was a while is that um, I had amassed so much material in teaching five or six classes that were relevant to the topic and had done a few other books and lots of other articles on the interim. I hope it was actually advantageous for me to just let those ideas sit and settle out over that decade and a half period of time. And the book doesn't just come from that teaching, but you quite explicitly narrate that into the introduction of the book itself, which I thought was uh, a quite honest thing to do and also helpful because it sort of situates the work in a way that isn't from the position of just sort of situating it into the scholarly literature, but actually into your own practice, into the world that, that all of us as scholars to actually really inhabit. Did you think about that consciously, like, or was it just a natural way to introduce that book? I did think about it consciously because I was hoping that the strategies that work with my class or my students over the course of 15 years, if I scale that down to the scope of, you know, however long it takes somebody to read the book, if they're really excited about it, maybe they could read it in two days, or they could stretch it out over a month. So that same strategy of digging backwards in time, I thought if it worked for students over 15 weeks, maybe that's also a successful strategy to apply with a reader, reading on a shorter time frame. So I was just hoping that that rhetorical structure would work at both scales. And then also, I am honestly very grateful for the things I've learned from my students and the opportunities we've had to think through things together. So it just wouldn't have occurred to me not to mention some of them. I and mean, even one of my former students who was also a TA in some of my classes actually proposed the original title of the book, which then became the title of the introduction. So my conversations with him uh, were really influential over the years also. So they were an integral part of the book, so I couldn't have not acknowledged how Hopefully the ideas that I have put forward could be useful to them, but also how their work has shaped my thinking too. Well, thanks very much, Shannon, for coming and speaking to us today. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. It's been fun.
That's it for this episode. I really enjoyed speaking with Shannon, found some of the things she had to say towards the end around pedagogy and research particularly inspiring. There's no question to my mind that one of the reasons her work is so rich, engaging, and accessible is not only because it's so interesting, but also because of the way it so often seems to have taken root and shaped through her teaching and her interaction with her students. Well, that's it for me this time around. Keep your eyes out for our next episode. And in the meantime, if you want to know more about the Data Materiality Project, including this podcast series, visit bbk.ac.uk forward slash Vasari. That's spelled V-A-S-A-R-I, where information about this project should be easy to find. <laughs>